As protests heat up, the Channel Zero Network has some reminders on how to stay safe while out in the streets. Bring buddies and don't let them out of the range of your voice. Write a legal aid number on your body so you can get help if you get arrested. Be sure to know your buddies' legal names and birthdays. You'll need these to help find them if they're arrested. When moving around, walk, don't run. Stick together. Turn off your phone while out in the streets to avoid surveillance of your location and so as not to have your unlocked phone taken by the authorities or other bad actors. Try your best not to stick out in a crowd. Cover up tattoos with clothing or body paint. Cops will use footage from the protest to try to identify you. Wear clothes that are good for moving quickly. Avoid wearing jewelry and wear closed-toed shoes. Wear your mask at all times, even if you're talking to someone, in order to guard yourself against surveillance, COVID-19, pepper spray, and tear gas. Avoid wearing contact lenses. Bring goggles of some kind in case of tear gas or pepper spray. Consider wearing bike helmets as police often cause head injuries with batons and other weapons. Don't take photos or videos of people doing anything illegal or with their faces uncovered. Whenever possible, film the cops, not the protesters. Only put water in your eyes. Don't use milk or baking soda or anything else. Clean water is the safest thing to use at a protest. If possible, bring a water bottle to drink from and a water bottle to flush out the eyes of any comrades who are maced or tear gassed. And white comrades are encouraged to follow the lead of black and brown comrades as they bear the brunt of state brutality. Follow Unicorn Riot and Channel Zero Network member It's Going Down for ongoing updates. The Channel Zero Network sends you all solidarity. Stay safe out there and never stop fighting for a better world. Welcome back to Radicalize Me, a show that is not pushing Biden left, but it is pushing me left. And hopefully you too. This is pretty much what I thought would happen to me. Uh, I mean, it's in the fucking name, Radicalize Me. I'm, I'm inviting people to do so. Uh, but what I, I want to push back on this label of radical, okay? And I, I don't mean the Bernie Sanders version of, I, I'm not as radical as you think. I'm really just a capitalist, and I'm going to try to make the oppressors be nicer to you. I mean that I was always left I just didn't always realize how radically right-wing this country was. I knew I was anti-authoritarian, anti-racist, anti-war, but I didn't realize how much it took to actually be anti those things. You can't just think it and hope it and wish it. Uh, I didn't know that you had to be anti-capitalist to meaning meaningfully change those things, right? Uh, I didn't even know you could be anti-capitalist, honestly, right? The way we're raised in this country, you know, I'm no exception. I, I thought we all just agreed that communism didn't work the first time, so it never would. And uh, with enough teamwork, we'll make capitalism work just fine. I no longer think that's true. Uh, <laughs> maybe needless to say, uh, I, I, I don't know if I'm a communist, but my point is that I'm I'm not so much moving left as I am carving out the leftist beneath the stone of my former political self. That's a good fucking metaphor. Deal with it. The more I learn about the innumerable ways capitalism and capitalist society crush people underneath it, the more ways I'm a leftist. All right? What a leftist is has revealed itself to me gradually over the course of my slow, painstaking self-re-education. I hope I'm making sense. 
<laughs> so I haven't gotten into like specific ideologies that much on the show because it's not always relevant to what we're talking about here. But just to be upfront, um, I currently consider myself a socialist. All right. Maybe not a Marxist. I, I'm still learning about him, so I don't. I just say I say socialist. All right, that's where I've landed. Um, you know, I started using the term democratic socialist back when Bernie was using it a lot in 2016. Uh, but d- democratic socialism and social democracy, or whatever, I, I I think are just terms created in the early to mid 20th century as a way for governments to satisfy the public's demands for socialism in many countries while maintaining a capitalist economy, right? Uh, uh, look, I haven't found a good answer on whether countries like Norway and Denmark are actually like socialist in any big way, but uh, in any case, it seems to me they have some, some kind of social democracy probably. For, from what I know about those countries, that seems to work there, but you know, again, I'm still learning I don't know what, uh, you know, I don't know everything that Norway is up to. Basically, I consider myself a socialist because I believe that many more human needs should be considered public utilities and or human rights. Right. Housing, electricity, running water, clean drinking water, food, transportation, health care, Internet, uh, to me, these are all necessities in the modern world and should be treated as such. And to do that requires public ownership, right? Which, in most cases, uh, if we're not talking about like like anarchism, which is something else that no <laughs> no one knows what fucking anarchy actually means, but if we're just if we're just talking about like you know sort of the world as we know it, but in this more uh, uh, egalitarian. Um, uh, mindset, we need public ownership, which requires government ownership, right? And I'm aware that government isn't always perfect, um, but we're not going for perfect, right? We're going for not the pulsating mound of flaming trash we have now. <laughs> so work with me. I also don't believe in massive individual wealth, right? We're seeing the damage that causes now. And if you're still not aware that anyone with like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk money is just diverting a ridiculous share of the wealth that their workers generate to themselves, I don't know what will convince you, but stick around and uh, you know maybe you'll learn. I'll try not to be too much of a dick. Uh, look, so like if we stick with this sort of like CEO model of of work, of companies, of businesses then I don't mind if the top person has more than the workers, I guess, but I've had enough of this shit where people work their asses off and end up with nothing, right? People, people are just working their lives away and they have very little to show for it. But that brings me to one more point about socialism for now. Uh, workplace democratization. I first heard this term from the Marxist economist Richard Wolff, whose work I highly recommend. Uh, I'll link to his piece from alternate.org. Ties that bind sexual assault, gender, and 21st century capitalism uh, in the description. That's a great place to start. Uh, It's something where, um, you know, 
when you hear about like intersectionality and that kind of thing, um, that article is a great, uh, he really, t- he, you know, it's called ties the bind. He ties it together really well. Um, in talking about sexual assault in the worst workplace, sexual harassment in the workplace and how this idea of democratizing the workplace could help solve a lot of those problems in addition to, you know, a million other things. Um, so workplace democracy is pretty much what it sounds like. Okay. Uh, it should come as no surprise to most people that your workplace is not a democracy. It's very much a dictatorship. And what if I told you that it doesn't have to be this way? The way most of us work now is not the only way work can be. And early labor activists call what we do now wage slavery. Right. And slavery is a heavyweight word. Uh, So, you know, uh, I can understand the the. cognitive dissonance that it might it it sort of seems like there is in a term like wage slavery it's like well wait wages are what's missing from slavery um but what it means is the system as it is now is you know like just change the way you think about it a little bit because what we have is uh the the resources hoarded by a few people we work for them to create and distribute those resources. And then we give them the money back that they paid us for access to those resources. Right, so wage slavery just refers to that that sort of endless cycle that, uh, you know, our brand of capitalism puts you in. One way to a more democratized workplace is to require that, you know, boards of directors include hourly workers. Like if you have a board of 10 people, five of them have to be workers or something, you know. That's one way to literally get some fucking democracy in there because now you have voting representatives when it comes to company decisions. I'm sure I don't have to tell Americans that representative democracy has its issues too, though. So why not take it a step further? Uh, the ideal democratic workplace would probably be a worker co-op or a worker-owned business. This, to me, sounds better than the government basically owning all businesses, but also much better than capitalism. Um, Worker-owned businesses may go beyond socialism and more into the territory of, like, anarcho-syndicalism, which is something else I've been learning about. Um which is a very interesting um, concept. And if you, a good way to learn a little more about it is to uh, look into the Spanish Revolution of 1936 to see it in action. That's uh, Catalonia, that area of Spain. Um, that's where anarcho-syndicalism has been tried. My guest today is Zach Hill, host of the podcast New Deal Democracy. Zach is a passionate, knowledgeable host who brings a lot of fire to his monologues and his interviews. And anytime he talks, really. Um, I feel like we should all be as mad as Zach is. Uh, In his fireside chat segment of the show, he does deep dives into current events, 
uh, like his episode on schools reopening during COVID uh, and ongoing issues like the housing crisis, that kind of thing. Um, our conversation went on for a while, uh, but it was really interesting. So I'm breaking it into three parts. That's right. So at least for the time being, we're back to being a weekly podcast. How about that? What I'll do is I'll release a show with a new guest every two weeks like I've been doing. But on what would normally be those off weeks, you'll hear the three portions of my conversation with Zach. Trust me, I know it sounds like a lot of material, but you're going to want to hear this. And uh, you'll want to listen to his show as well, where he puts out two or three hours every couple of weeks. But it's, it's definitely worth your time. With that, let's get to Zach Hill. And like Twitter issues as well. I think I'm permanently suspended on Twitter. So yeah, I saw that. What what happened? So I did an episode on back to school reopening like three weeks ago. And there was a superintendent in like a really rural Republican white led anti-masking school district right. that I got on the phone with him and I recorded him hanging up on me when I asked him why he was going to get his employees killed this fall. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so and, you called into like a, a city council meeting or something? No, like I called his office and he was oh. stupid enough to call me back. <laughs> Okay. So like he called me back and I recorded it like on the fly, just thinking like, Oh, what if this dumbass says something stupid? So yeah. So then after he hung up on me, I started like following him on Twitter and like essentially harassing him, but not threatening him or anything. But like every time he would tweet something out, I would make a comment about how, you know, superintendent Trotter is going to get your family killed and he's going to get your family sick and kill you and all this kind of stuff. And I think the word kill got me like automatically like auto banned or something. But um, so I appealed it for like a day and didn't hear anything. So then I dropped the appeal just to like, you know, move the process along. Um, so that happened. And then um, when the Jacob Blake shooting happened like two weeks ago, I very impromptuly um, joined the brick party there for a little while and started retweeting that brick video where the cop got hit in the back of the head by the brick. Mm -hmm. And then there was like 50 really funny comments in that thread talking about like brick lives matter and like oh the brick God. really was scared for himself and yeah. talking about how like the brick has brick children at home. Think about the brick children, right? You know, like, Oh my God, is the brick. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, like, didn't you see how the cop was dressed? He was asking for it. Yeah. Like the brick had to act, you know, like these kind of things, essentially flipping the narrative of yeah. all cop brutality in the form of this brick. And then when I woke up the next morning, I was like permabanned. So I don't think wow. any of it was actually a person like doing anything to me. I think it was all automated. Um, yeah. So it was because of like the comments on the thing that you shared. I think that that original tweet got suspended or banned. And then the fact that I retweeted 50 comments on a suspended tweet. Oh, okay. I think might've had something to do with it. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. Apparently I can't just be myself on, um, twitter without getting fucking suspended so and then i don't have any backup social media because like, i hate reddit because i just hate reddit and facebook on a principle i don't want to have a facebook yeah and then instagram i've just never really waded into those waters so i'm not familiar with it but that might have to be like i'm probably gonna have to get back on reddit and i'm probably gonna have to get on instagram to have backup platforms so when i do get suspended on twitter that I don't lose my ability to like network and contact with people because yeah. I lost all my DMS. I can't even access my DMS. Yeah. So, like that zoom link that you sent me, like <laughs> I couldn't gone. even get it. Like that was, I was, so like, I didn't know 
Yeah. Yeah, I saw. I was your first follower on. Uh, yeah, you're yeah. my only follower on that <laughs> new account. That was supposed to be the show account. And it's just been like collecting dust for like months. Okay. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to dust this thing off and try and message him because like I felt really bad that like we had set all this up and then I kind of like ghosted on you. So. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I was like waiting to hear back from you about anything. So I, I figured, I yeah, you would probably planning. move on or you just yeah. like do your own thing or something would happen. So, but yeah, I'm glad it worked out. So, yeah, man. um, yeah, um, I've been listening to your podcast a bit. Um, it's, uh, it's great. You know, I, uh, realized after a while, cause so much of it is you monologuing mm-hmm. and I didn't even realize that for a while. I was like, this is like a very compelling podcast that is one guy talking to me. Um, it's just and it- me in my underwear. I put a shirt on because I thought the video <laughs> might work, but I can probably go ahead and take my shirt back off now that the video's frozen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's great too. Do you script a lot of that stuff, man? So the monologue the fireside chats that I do in the beginning, Mm. I write all those out and I read them. Yeah. And I record that on audacity and I'll read three or four paragraphs at a time until I get out of breath and I need a break. And then I can pause the recording, kind of catch my breath and then hit re-record again and then edit that gap out when I do it. Mm. Um, for the firesides for the news stuff, man, I have like three or four bullet points per story. And as long as I check those off, my story's done. So the news is a lot more free flowing um, if you've gotten to that stuff at the end. So usually I'll have the fireside, which is very scripted. And like, I'm very concerned about like every word that I say in the fireside Yeah, because I'm noticing that there's a lot of people. So I've got like a little over a hundred listeners right now. Um, So I'm not sure how many listeners you average per episode. Are, are you over a hundred? Are you at two fifty? Like, where are you at right now? No, I, I'm s- still like under a hundred. Okay, so yeah, I'm like, I'm barely getting over a hundred listeners right now, and that's only because Professor Harvey J.K., my first guest, yeah, um, helped helped me get a lot of followers initially, nice. <laughs> and was retweeting all my shit initially. But like, I don't think he likes me anymore because we had a Zoom meeting the other day, and he had he tried to like vote shame me, and oh, no. like this is between me and you off the record, uh-huh. um. But like he was like Zach, like I've been seeing your Twitter and you're like shitting on Joe Biden and Kamala. Like man, like if you're not gonna vote Democrat, like I don't know if we can be friends. And he kind of <laughs> chuckled, but he was serious. So like, huh. dude, he's got he's got dental insurance, man. Like my tooth hurts and I don't I don't have anywhere right. to go. Like don't vote shame me, motherfucker. Like, but the thing is, like I owe him everything. So like, how angry can I be when I was a nobody that started a podcast and he scooped me up from obscurity and yeah. like gave me a chance so i can't really hold too much against him but yeah that was very frustrating yeah well that's like um, that's how the democratic party works too right and that's <laughs> how the blue check mark a... motherfuckers work too is like you know he's trying to co the tump the toe the company line you know right. like essentially and then so yeah 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 you know it's it's such a thing with the uh with the voter shaming um you know i was probably guilty of that like early on in the uh, you know 2016 election, because I was I was very pro Bernie from the beginning. I I was like tuned into Bernie you know 10 years ago uh, yeah. when he started like criticizing Obama. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, yeah, I remember when when it was Hillary. I kind of got myself into a mindset where I was like, come on, like why wouldn't you just and like <laughs> I'm yeah. still sort of that way. Like I think I'm gonna vote for. I was Biden, that way like, probably up until the midterms of 2018. Yeah. A little bit and then 
honestly, ever since 2018, I've probably just been getting more and more radicalized. And then probably within the last year, like full on radicalization following the Bernie campaign and then, um, you know, Bernie getting fucked again. And now I'm like, I'm done with these motherfuckers. Like I'm green all the way. Yeah. Which I totally get. And it's like, cause you know, I've made the same calculation that like, okay, I think I'm going to vote for Biden for, you know, strategically, but like, I, I understand how you and like many other people don't feel that way <laughs> you know like yeah that's the, and like, the thing is like i still probably i still vote shame people on the right a lot unless they could like actually give me some tangible reasons why they would vote for trump again right because sure. like i think in 2016 you could make an argument that there's a lot of people voting for trump for like legitimately populist economic reasons when he's talking about trade and yeah. tariffs and manufacturing a lot more but like he's not talking about that shit anymore mm-hmm. like he's like inflaming everyone he's talking about race yeah. He's like stirring the shit. So like, really, I don't see, I guess if somebody wanted to like claim to me in 2020 that they're still voting for those kind of reasons, I'd have to take them at their word face value. Yeah. But like, I don't really buy that from people on the right, but anyone that's left of center, like I feel has a role to play in the movement. Even, even some boomer mom in a swing state that's vote blue, no matter who, like, you know, there's they still have a role to play in the movement. So yeah, and it's you know, I'm also, not going to vote shame because, like, honestly, yeah, I was listening to your podcast as well. Your most recent episode with the woman from California, the C, um, the uh, AFL CIO out there, yeah, and talking about how like, um, and like as long as you're like voting left, like, yeah, Democrats are still like they're still shitty, but they're better than Republicans. So like, as long as you're voting that, like, I'm not going to shit on you too hard. Right. And, I, and that's kind of where I come from, because at least like they're because really they're probably just further behind me in my radicalization. Like, hopefully is the way I'd like to feel it, because yeah. like I have friends in Portland that I've made doing the show that I like message on signal and stuff. And like they're full on anarchists. And the way I look at it with them is like they're just further along than I am. Like maybe yeah. in two years I'll be where they are. <laughs> I don't know. Like who's right. to know how I'm going to be affected so, like, maybe the people that are still blow, vote blue no matter who, maybe they're just where I was two years ago or four years ago. Yeah. You know? So, like, maybe they're coming from the Republican Party <laughs> under Romney or Paul Ryan, and right. they've been slowly <laughs> pulled to the left, and now that's just where they are. And, you know, like, who's to yell at them? Like, because if you're going to yell at them when they've come left from maybe right, mm-hmm. maybe you push them back right, you know? So, like, right. So like it's, 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 a, it's a careful thing, and I don't really – I feel like you can't really just like vote shame anyone empty handed without having a conversation about it. But if you have a long conversation with someone and they explain where they're at, well then like you can judge someone based on that because you've had a conversation, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's true. I I think like, um, uh, if, if, if say like someone like yourself who's a leftist and isn't voting Democrat Mm -hmm. is being asked to justify that, I don't see why anyone else shouldn't have to make the same justifications for their vote. You know, yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to say it publicly, conversation and... with somebody, I think that's a fair thing to ask of someone. Yeah. Now, if you're sitting at a Thanksgiving table with a bunch of redneck, like hillbillies, <laughs> like like my family would be, well, then yeah, you're not going to get an honest conversation from them because they're not coming from a point of wanting to have that honest conversation. Right. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it's got to be a two way street, I guess, would be what I'm saying. So, like, if you're going to have that conversation with someone, but those debates don't seem to be really happening, like honest, good faith debates in 2020. So, 
Yeah, I I think uh, there's a lot of uh, yelling at each other, but yeah, it, it they, they yeah. exist, but it just it takes a lot of searching. Yeah, because um, I was listening to your episode before you brought her on. You were kind of doing your own thing a little bit, talking about how, um, you know, trying not to get in, in Twitter beefs with people and, yeah, <laughs> you know, like do as I say, not as I do, kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Because it, sometimes it's just it's I'm hard. In, I, I'm yeah. in a mood, and then and like I doing it at something. two in the morning when the only people that are awake are going to be like Europeans or like bots <laughs> or something. Like, right. It's not. Yeah, yeah and it, it, you're not you're not doing anything. You're not changing anything. Yeah, and that's and, kind of the reason I hate Reddit and why I got off Reddit hmm. was like, dude, I spent years on Reddit first anonymously, and then I had a profile, and I never changed or did anything. And within like six weeks of being on Twitter, I had a podcast and was like changing my life. You know, <laughs> right. so like I was so all about Twitter for a while until they fucking started suspending me for no reason. Yeah, but, like well, I feel like Twitter's op- like more open to the rest of the world and the internet, whereas Reddit's mm-hmm. like a very closed system. Like. <laughs> and people being like the the an- anonymity of Reddit, I feel yeah. like leads people to being more vitriolic. I guess, um, like people are a lot more careful with what they say on Twitter because it's less anonymous. Most people have their real yeah. names and like, which is crazy to think because <laughs> people are outrageous on Twitter. But yeah, but yeah. like if you think about it, Reddit is so much more fucking wild west yeah, than Twitter yeah. with the shit, dude. I used to say crazy fucking shit to people on Reddit and nothing ever happened to me. <laughs> and like I think I've tamed myself down and yeah. then um I just had a fucking cop drive by my house. Oh, shit. I fucking cops, man. Like, um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they actually got me off my game here. I don't even know what I was talking about. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, this just like, and I thought, like, yeah, because, like, man, I got my internet training on Reddit. I'm like a edgy motherfucker. And now I'm going to go to Twitter and, like, tame it down and, like, know the boundaries and the rules. And even when I try to play by the rule, I never threaten to kill anybody or do anything crazy. That's like, I obviously know that's going to get me suspended. But even knowing that and trying not to go up to that line still got me suspended. So, like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Reddit is like the uh, it's like the Texas of the internet. Like honestly, like, like, um, like the rest of the internet changed around it. Yeah, and, and then like I would like get the... like banned from our politics continuously, and then I would just <laughs> find subreddits that like wouldn't ban me when I would call someone a fuckface or something, which right. was mainly our Houston. Like a lot of the local subreddits that have like zero mods, dude. They just let anything fly, man. Yeah. Like I know our Houston is the one. Um, that was I never got banned on R Houston for anything I ever said ever, and <laughs> oh I said God. the most wild. Like I was trying to get suspended at certain points. Yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about today? Like, what is your episode? Well, so like, what do you uh... the the conceit of the show is usually uh, to talk to activists about what uh, what they do, you know, what mm-hmm. cause they work towards, and how listeners can get involved with that. So mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, that takes many forms. And one of those is like, you know, independent journalism and media stuff. So like your mm-hmm. show is a very interesting, um, uh, uh th- like dissemination of, of information that people mm-hmm. might not get elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, I think you, you make, um, very impassioned, like moral arguments for these things, which I think is really important on top of like being, on top of policy and everything is mm-hmm. saying like, here's why this is the right thing to do. So I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, you said you went through a bit of a radic- radicalization, came from a mm-hmm. right wing family. What kind of got you to this point where you're doing a new deal democracy? Oh, uh, really just, um, 
tired of sitting on the sidelines. Honestly, are we recording? Or are we still off the record? Or what are we? Oh, we're recording. I'm sorry, I fucked it up. I apologize. No, that's okay. <laughs> okay. Do you want to start over, or what do you want to do? No, no, it's all good. Okay. Yeah, I'll just I can. So, um, yeah, no. So I guess a lot of my frustration has really been since 2018. Um, I got really involved in the Beto O'Rourke campaign here in Texas in 2018. He was running against Ted Cruz. And, um, yeah, no, so I volunteered on that campaign, donated a lot of money to it. And I knew he wasn't a progressive. I knew he wasn't a leftist. I knew he was, you know, like a standard corporate, you know, Democrat. You could just look at who his father-in-law is being a billionaire <laughs> and know that, you know, better O'Rourke's not going to save anybody. But at the time, you know, knowing that when I live in Texas and, you know, red Texas had a chance to get a blue Senator. And if I remember correctly, he only lost by like a point and a half. So, you know, there was a lot of people in Texas that really, you know, united behind Beto and didn't really want to focus too much on the distinctions between leftists and liberals and, yeah, you know, how progressive someone is and stuff, because, you know, anybody would be, you know, better than Ted Cruz at that point. So I got involved in that race and then he lost. And um, that really kind of opened my eyes to that kind of difference, that distinction, um, because everything just kind of got worse with Trump. You know, it just got worse and worse and worse and just the worse things got. And um, the more that it just kind of seemed to compound on itself, it just kind of pushed me further to. So, I mean, to go back a little bit, I did definitely support Bernie in 2016 but I did vote for Hillary in 2016, like, and had yeah. no issues with it. And, you know, bought myself a bottle of champagne that I was going to pop when Hillary won in honor <laughs> of the first female president and was legitimately excited about it. Not yeah. that, and I knew she was a horrible candidate at the time. Like, it didn't right. matter. Like, um, everything about the Clintons and how corrupt they are and everything horrible they've done and all the policies going back to the counter scheduling against the left in the nineties and going against welfare and NAFTA and just really the reorientation of the democratic party around this PMC neoliberal, you know, upper middle crust of society Mm -hmm. um, where they really focus on people that are high end earners making, you know, more than really six figures up to 400,000 is going to be their number. And that's going to be, you know, like the, the top 7% of America minus the 1% is who they're catering to. And you can see it with Joe Biden's tax plans, how he has um, pushed the upper limits of his tax policy where, and when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, she promised that she was um, not going to raise taxes on anyone below $250,000. And that was kind of the max that she had. Yeah. And now you see Joe Biden's pushed that up to 400,000. Oh and that gosh. number is not random. That that 400,000 number pushes him right up to the 1%. Um, oh, wow. So I guess I saw the world getting worse under Trump. And then you see a candidate like Bernie come along, you know, in 2019 when he decided to run. And then you see someone like Elizabeth Warren kind of running to the middle and abandoning every economic populist, you know, bone in her body, trying to sell out to be some kind of third way middle ground alternate, which you can see got her nowhere. And really 
compromising on your policies gets you nowhere. You should see how she didn't win a single state during the primaries, not a single state. Yeah. So I guess pushing me to this point was kind of a combination of things. It was Bernie getting screwed again, Biden being gifted this nomination. And then as soon as Biden gets it, he ought to, he's already running to the center, talking about austerity with Ted Kaufman, talking about raising the tax rates to 400, um, not giving the left anything. They had these task, force, uh, task forces where they didn't guarantee a federal jobs program. They didn't guarantee universal health care coverage. They're not going to legalize weed. They're not going to have the criminal justice reform that goes along with legalizing weed and expunging records of these nonviolent drug offenses that Kamala likes to laugh about. And the whole thing is just bullshit. You know, it's just it'll just push you further and further to not want to cave on your morals to the point where in 2016, I believed everything that Bernie was saying was absolutely true and I believed it in my bones but I was still willing to vote for Hillary you know just to choose the lesser of two evils but at 2020 that's not happening now I'm not going to say that I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden Kamala Harris right now because they still have 60 some odd days to earn my vote right and my vote needs to be earned so I'm not going to say I'm not going to vote for Joe and Kamala right now but as of this moment they've not done enough to earn my vote yeah. And when I listen to someone like Howie Hawkins speak, and when I listen to someone like Angela Walker speak, that would be the the presidential nominee and the vice presidential nominee of the Green Party. Mm. I, I get excited. I get excited like I got excited when I was listening to Bernie because they sound like I sound. They right. talk about the exact same issues with full conviction without having to censor or filter themselves or modify their positions to compromise with anybody. They are uncompromising and unflinching and it's refreshing. It's the same kind of refreshing that you go when you go to a Bernie rally. Um, I, I've seen Bernie once in in person speak. I saw him at U of H here in, I guess it was probably January before things kind of got crazy um, on campus at the University of Houston uh, here in town. And um, it's inspiring to listen to someone who is a national figure that people respect. You know, he gets to go on TV. He's got millions of followers. He's he's a national figure. And for him to say and believe in the policies and the issues in this country that I believe in, that resonates with people and that connects with people. Because a lot of us have been seeing these same problems going on 20 years now. Like, I'm 34 years old. I graduated from high school in 2005. The Iraq War happened when I was already in high school. None of this shit has changed. You know, it's yeah. just gotten worse and worse and worse. But nothing has actually changed. Right. So a lot of these issues that Bernie's been talking about, he's been talking about since the 80s. And really, this is, this is kind of a double-edged sword here with Bernie, or two sides of the coin, is that a lot of his talking points really haven't been modified from the 80s. So that's a good thing and a bad thing in certain ways. In, in a good thing, I feel like it leads him to talking about Scandinavia and a lot of these arguments that he would use that he just hasn't updated and hasn't changed. <laughs> um, right. But at the same time, it means that he is really accustomed to being attacked as a communist and a socialist. Yeah. So it kind of goes both ways with Bernie. 
But yeah, no, I mean, so I guess that was kind of a long winded way of you getting you're asking me how I became this leftist and how I started a podcast. So really how I became a leftist would really be that whole story there getting to the point where Bernie got screwed on Super Tuesday and the podcast and New Deal democracy came about because I didn't see anybody, even people like Kyle Kalinsky and the Humanist Report, and Sam Cedar, and Jimmy Dore, and Crystal and Sager on Rising. Like, I'm fans of all these people, but I didn't even really hear the arguments from them that I thought needed to be made. And that was really rooting the arguments in history, um, first and foremost. Because yeah. I was a history major. I, grad I graduated okay. from UT Austin with a history degree, and then I became a teacher. But I did not major in education. I got my alternative certification after I graduated from UT Austin. And there's a lot of people that shit on ACP programs, the alternative certification programs. But I taught for nine years in a public in public school here in Houston ISD down here in Texas. And I actually think that there is a really strong case to be made for alternative certification programs because what it allows you to do is major in something that you love and that's something that you care about, be it you know, history or government, or they, they, they don't call it political science at UT, they call it government, or maybe um, English or literary studies, mm. or mathematics or science, or like a specific branch of science, you know, that you study, and you become an expert in that. And then after you become an expert in your field of study, then you can go and be trained on how to be a teacher learning classroom management techniques and the pedagogy and you know, how you want to design a lesson and yeah. how to how to really create your lesson in the most engaging way possible. And I really think that served me well because there's a lot of people that they know they want to be teachers when they're in high school. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. And they major in education and they learn all the pedagogy and they learn all the classroom management and they learn, you know, how to design their classrooms and all this kind of bullshit or whatever. And then they become teachers and the principal says, hey, so-and-so, we're going to hire you to be a math teacher or yeah. a science teacher. And, like, this person has zero background in that subject, you know, right. since high school. They've not they've probably not taken a math class since, you know, bio 101 freshman year of college or maybe even high school. Yeah. And now you're expecting them to master this curriculum. And I think the entire fucking system of education is backwards to where I mm. feel like the way that I went about becoming a certified teacher is really frowned upon as people that didn't want to be teachers and they're looked down upon by those people that knew they wanted to be teachers. Like I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I'm right. so much better than you because like I knew what I wanted to do, but like I go into your history room and you don't know jack shit about history or a science teacher will go into your room and observe you. And like, you're, you're a brain dead moron on science. Like you had to teach yourself this stuff. Yeah. And like you're self-taught at that point because you don't have any formal training. So you end up getting these teachers who understand how to design a lesson and they understand classroom management and they understand all the things they're supposed to do, but they don't actually understand the content. So it makes them bad teachers and they yeah. become generalists and they go from teaching reading one year to math the next year to science the next year. Right. What, what kind of, what kind of teacher is that <laughs> going to be? I can tell you they're not going to be a good one. Um, so Becoming a teacher and really studying the history is, is, is my background, but I feel like 
it it very it put me in a really unique position to create the podcast because when I create a podcast, I'm very much in the same mindset of creating a lesson. So I've been a professional for nine years in the city of Houston creating historical lessons for, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old black and brown kids in the city teaching them history. And it had to be engaging. It had to be interesting. It had to be something that they cared about. And knowing through, you know, trial and error, you know, what lessons work and what lessons don't and which things resonate with people and which things don't. Um, and realizing that there's not a whole hell of a lot of difference between an American teenager and a 35 year old American. Like they're, they're really not. Cause at that point they are young adults and they fully understand everything going on. So um, the, the, the talents that I learned through teaching really have been able to translate to the podcast. So understanding the history and understanding how to present arguments with people in an engaging way where, you know, I understand what I need to do to get my point across and make it convincing and also engaging and interesting at the same time. And I know, I know when I can take little liberties with that, where I can take, you know, I'm going to put a little five minute clip in here. That's probably going to bore a couple people, but some people will listen. And if they want to skip ahead, you know, they can skip ahead, but I think it's important. And I would like you to try and listen to it. Yeah. And uh, knowing that I can do that maybe in the middle of my show or towards the end, but not in the first 15, 20 minutes. Um, even something like teaching will teach you that my introductions that I record, the first three or four minutes of the intro is the most important part of the show because I'm running down everything I'm going to cover. I usually try and have something outlandish that I say in the first three minutes to like suck people in. I, know, I remember the first episode that I did, I made some crack about Ghislaine Maxwell, like not killing herself yet or something. And, yeah. like, I got a lot of feedback <laughs> from people saying, like, oh, shit, like, he's talking about Ghislaine Maxwell. And then they said, like, I didn't listen to the whole first episode, but I definitely at least fast-forwarded to that Ghislaine Maxwell part at the end yeah. so I could hear you talk about that. So, like, that's the hook. You know, that's how you've got to do that. And those are the exact same strategies and tactics that a teacher will use when they're teaching their class is you got to do something fucking crazy in the first five minutes and, like, explain to the kids – why all this hour and a half of boring shit that we're about to do like really matters. So you can tie it with a bow at the end and understand, you know, what the goal was of like what they're trying to learn the objective for that lesson. So hmm. not sure yeah. if, I, if I answered anything or if I got off track <laughs> there, but no, it does. Yeah. I, um, that last part made me think of, I, in college I had a, uh, uh, I, I took a satire class. I was a writing major okay. and, um, I, this professor was like this insane, like uh, old Italian man. And he like, he would start the class. Like once everyone was seated, he would immediately hit play on like a tape recorder. And so, you know, some like uh, uh, medieval music would start playing. And he'd be like, the year is 1536. And we are in a, <laughs> on a sidewalk cafe in Florence. So like what it was you know, like that shit is what I remember from that class. And just this guy, like, uh, having, you know, so much reverence and like laughing every time when he would show us stuff that he showed every class, but it was like, you know, it hit him every time. Um, and there's a couple of things you picked up from that. You picked up his passion for the topic. You right. picked up the hook 
which was him getting you engaged in the topic. And it, it prepared you. It, it opened your mind to learning is essentially what he was doing. Yeah. Was he was um, introducing you to the subject in the most engaging, interesting way possible in the beginning of the lesson. So that when you so that when the lesson does drag a little bit towards the end that you can remember that hook like, you know, I'm really paying attention because of this. Yeah. And um, that that's what's going to keep you on task. And the fact that you remembered it, you know, how many every years later and it stuck with you resonated right and that's the stuff that people remember is um things like that those are the memories that students remember from the teachers and that's the hook you know that's how they got you and i had a very similar experience with a teacher a professor at, at ut um he taught medieval history but also focused on world war one as well that was something that he, he focused on a lot so yeah. i took a medieval history class from him and also took a medieval warfare class from him. He taught an, he taught an entire semester class just on medieval warfare. Um, and we would write, you know, essays on, you know, medieval warfare. And I remember writing an essay on bow weapons versus hand-to-hand um, -hand combat and how the hand-to-hand -hand combat of the knights was seen as the noble form of warfare. Uh -huh. But really, crossbows and bows and arrows, the bow weapons were 10 times more lethal and effective and accurate at distance. But those right. were the weapons seen for the lower classes. So they weren't seen as like noble weapons. And I wrote a whole paper on this, but I remember where I'm getting at is, is we had, so I took him the third time for this World War I class. And it's probably the most interesting class I've ever taken because I didn't know much about World War I at the time. But that has probably been the one class that I've referenced the most throughout, you know, the time since I've graduated the last, last, I guess 10 years or so um, is that world war one class, because I learned so much about the four major European dynasties and how they collapsed. And then you get, you know, the communist revolution in Russia and all of the results in the middle East with Sykes Pico that comes out of it. And like, I didn't have a whole lot of that knowledge prior, but I remember he played a song. It was a English folk song that was written, obviously, you know, at the turn of the century, you know, during the World War One era, the Great War era, I guess, at the time they would have called it. And it was talking about the lost generation. I can't even remember the name of the song, but if I had if I could pull up YouTube, I could easily find it. And it talks about the lost generations and, you know, the lives that have been lost unnecessarily and dying for these upper you know, crusts of society and all this kind of stuff. And this song is kind of cheesy and it's got a British accent and it's kind of upbeat with the, the tempo. So it's kind of yeah. weird to have such a sad song, but <laughs> like a fast paced upbeat. It's almost like, sounds like an Irish drinking song a little bit, maybe. Right. Um, but I remember we were listening to this song and I was thinking, yeah, the song's kind of cheesy or whatever. But when the song was over and he, he was playing this on a CD player, because it was a seminar class. There was only 25 people in the room. It's a very small class. Hmm. And he was crying. I remember he was crying. And um, I thought to myself, he's probably heard this song hundreds of times and has probably played this song for classes hundreds of times. Yeah. And he's not faking these emotions. Right. Like he is genuinely having a break, not a breakdown, but he's having an emotional reaction to this song in front of us you know, with zero shame, unabashedly having this reaction. And that emotional reaction resonated with me. Not the song. I can't even remember the name of the song. Yeah. But his reaction to the song resonated with me. 
And you can say millions of people died, but for me, him reacting to that way yeah. somehow made the lost generations more real to me, I guess. Um, and that just always stuck with me. And that's going to be the same kind of engagement that your professor did with him playing that song and reading in that voice and trying to set the scene is just making it as real as possible and also using first person sources and like primary sources whenever possible is also very interesting as well. Like reading original accounts and like playing a song that was written at the time or reading letters and notes that were written at the time, just to try and put you in that time period and that experience as much as possible, because that's the difficult part with history sometimes is, you know, getting people to legitimately place themselves in that era and understand what it would be like to be in those people's shoes. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what really got me with that is like, man, like if I were living in England in that time, I would have been drafted and I would have been killed too. Yeah. Um, maybe that was part of it as well, was maybe relating to those guys in England and France that would have given their land. You know, Germany and Austria and Turkey and Russia, you know, there really weren't good and bad sides in World War One. <laughs> Um, when the yeah, war started, kind of you know, the bad night. sides really came out when the Treaty of Versailles started and they started to punish those people um, with the war debts and all that kind of stuff. But that's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's funny because I um, you're talking about your professor reacting emotionally to this thing. And, and uh, that makes me think of this same professor reacting to uh wayne's world he would he showed us the uh bohemian rhapsody scene from wayne's world Mm -hmm. and was just dying laughing and that that was another great thing about that class was like that yeah he would tell us about some like renaissance era like italian satirist but then he'd be like and also wayne's world does this well you know i think that's really important (laughs) yeah that's really important i think in education is being like uh hey you know this thing that's like, you know, your parents probably thought was dumb, but you grew up watching and laughing at, that's valid too. That's like, you know, worthy of, of our time here in this university. And it, it gains him legitimacy with the younger generations that like, um, it, what it does is it says, I can appreciate Wayne's world. So I'm also appreciating this 16th century Italian, you know, writer. So if I appreciate both, you should appreciate both. Yeah. Is kind of what he's, he's trying to make the case in like a weird kind of circular way there, I think. so. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, that's actually sort of the approach at this place uh, where I teach. Um, I'm interested in, in what you're talking about with, with teaching, actually, because I, I teach music. Okay. Um, you know, I do, right now it's just lessons. But, uh, you know, I, t- I teach at this place that does lessons and like... Um, group classes and and has like performance groups and stuff um and it's it's like a rock focused thing um so that that's kind of like the whole conceit is like we're gonna learn music like we're really gonna do it with theory and and like practice and everything but we're gonna play acdc you know (laughs) it's it's like this is how we're gonna show you that it, it it applies and i think uh you know what i try to do there is like when the kids are like Oh, can we do like a, a BTS song? I'm like, I, I mean, sure. If if it's you know, I'll I'll give it a chance. Um, so it's it's like yeah, uh, you, you gotta update these things for for people because it 
culture changes like it just does <laughs> and, yeah and, and you've not... got to be able to relate to the people that you're teaching with i mean yeah. that's very and and um if, if 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 there's anybody that's a teacher out there if your children your students ever suggest that you do something don't shut them down like immediately right offhand like you need to listen to them and be open to whatever they're talking about because that's going to create a lot healthier of a classroom environment where the children feel like if they have something interesting to say or they think something that they could add to the discussion that they feel free and open to add that because if they constantly have a teacher saying, no, that's not the same or no, that's not like this or whatever, you're going to stifle that, that enthusiasm and that creativity. And you're going to disengage them from the class. Like, why would you ever shut a kid down who is like, Oh, Oh, Hey teacher. Oh, Hey, what, what, what about this? What about this? Like that kid is into your class. That kid loves your class. That kid loves yeah. you. They're super into everything you're doing. And then to say, no, Timmy, that's not how that works. You need to like <laughs> learn your place. And that's not what we're doing here. That's going to kill that kid's enthusiasm. And they're probably going to shut down and they might not ever ask you an interesting question again for the rest of the year. So be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I shut a kid down for suggesting Imagine Dragons. Maybe I should have given him more of a chance. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, just like, and if you really hate Imagine Dragons, just like say, yeah, you know, we could talk about that later. And then face to face, explain to him why they suck. I don't know, like, what, <laughs> you know, whatever you're yeah, comfortable yeah. with. But yeah, just, you know, um, just a blanket dismissal of kids ideas and questions and stuff is really not the way to teach. And I, the only reason I'm saying that is because I've seen dozens of teachers act that way where um they know better than the kids and they don't think they can ever learn anything from the kids and that's yeah. not true at all these kids taught me stuff all the time and they would teach me things about where i would be teaching them about a subject and they'd say hey mr hill is that like so and so so and so and then i'd be like uh what is so and so so and so and they'd be like oh well it's this this and this and i'd be like well let's pull that up on youtube and see what it's like and we can like talk about it and then i'll pull up whatever they're talking about and we'll be like, eh, well, you know, this is kind of like it, but this is not or, you know, whatever. And we would just like talk about it. And yeah. then we would, you know, go back to the lesson. And they, they love that because it allowed them to, you know, add something to the class. It allowed them to participate and engage. It brought some of their culture into it. Um, we do this a lot with like music where I'd be talking about like a song or something. And I'd say, oh, it's like this. And they'd say like, we talk about like hip hop a lot. I'd talk about like, you know, late eighties, early nineties hip hop or something. And I'd be like, Oh, like, do y'all know this person? They'd be like, Oh, are they like this? And be like, no, 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 no. They're not like that. And they would like pull up a song for me. Cause they always like a lot of these people, like, like Lil Xan or these kind of people with the mumble rap and all yeah. that kind of stuff or whatever. <laughs> and like, yeah. So, I mean, we would have debates about that kind of stuff or whatever. And, um, that's that same cop keeps driving down my street. Oh, really? You saw your yeah, tweets. That, that same cop. <laughs> I'm watching y'all, HPD. I'm always watching. Oh my god. Um, I don't even remember what I was talking about. Now. They got me off my game. It's working. It happened last time too. Every time they drive by, I lose my train of thought. Maybe they're uh, doing something to me there, right? Mm. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, no. The kids they would always um, they would always do stuff like that where I would be talking about something and they would say, "Oh, is it like this?" or uh, and they would just they they would add that they kept me young really in a way um there are elements of you know zoomer culture that i'm way more familiar with yeah. than i should be <laughs> just because i've been you know and i my, my last school that i taught at for four years was an all boys school as well um mm. so and it was a public school but it was a public school based on charter principles so it was an all boys school um 
it was 100% Title One, but it was also a combination middle school and high school, and they wore blazers and ties and everything. It was a college prep school, but it was in HISD, the seventh largest you know public school district in the nation. And uh, so, yeah, that those were kids that I hung out with the most. Were going to be you know lower socioeconomic income, you know, black and brown kids from inner city Houston, but. A lot of them had, you know, really solid families at home, had really great parent involvement and was like a pretty good school for, you know, having kids as far as like behavior was not an issue. Like they were really well behaved and really good, but like they were coming from pretty rough households sometimes, you know, not necessarily, you know, family stability, but, you know, economic stability. And uh, yeah, man, you'll, they'll teach you a lot. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, so I have one more question question about teaching, and then yeah, we, we can uh, get back to politics. But uh, yeah, I'm interested in this alternative certification thing you were talking about because that's I've I've never heard of that. Yeah, so I'm not sure how it applies to any other states. I can only speak okay. to Texas because I'm born and raised in Houston, and I've never lived outside of Texas my whole life. I've lived ah. in Houston for 30, 30 years of my life, and I spent four years in Austin for university. So, like, I'm born and raised Houston. That's what I know. But so essentially what you can do is they call it ACP and it's alternative certification program. And what you do is you pay a company like a third party company, a lot of money, like thousands of dollars. Okay. And what I did was I went to, it was like maybe eight or 12 sessions, I think maybe 16. It was not very long. It was a small amount of training, probably a ridiculously small amount of training equivalent to like police training. If I'm thinking, if I'm thinking about it. Um, and you would go for a Saturday for all day. So it'd be like from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. or something. And then you would go during the week for like three hours from like 7 to 10 or from like 6 to 9 or something like that. And you did that for like 8 to 12 weeks or something like that. And when you were done, you got like you had passed their program, but that didn't actually get you the certification. You had to pass multiple state tests to get that certification from the state. So the the you had to do the training through the ACP program and then the program allowed you to take the tests and then you would take the tests, and then the state would certify you based on those tests. And you had a teacher test, which was like a generic teacher test. And then you would have a content test on top of it. So I took one test that was about generically teaching like classroom management and like Timmy gets out of his chair constantly. Like how would you address Timmy staying yeah. in his chair? And they give you like four options and you pick, which one is going to most likely result in Timmy sitting in his chair, stuff like that. But then the other one is like straight up history questions. Like what is okay. the emancipation proclamation and stuff right. like that. Um, so then you would, you graduate and then you're eligible to be hired as a teacher. But what I can tell you is that those ACP programs teach you like almost nothing about classroom management and stuff like that, because, um, I'm not going to say that they don't teach you anything. Really, these ACP programs allow you to make of it what you want to make out of it. Okay. So you'd have a lot of people that would show up to these because they had them in hotel ballrooms because you'd have like 500 people in a room. Yeah. So it was really easy to like go and sign in at 9 a.m. and just like walk out and leave and just go do whatever all day Saturday and then come back at 2.30 and sign out and they thought you were there all day. <laughs> or you'd have people that would come in and sign in and they would sleep in the back the whole time. Yeah, and literally well, they would sleep, and no one would wake yeah. them up. No one would do anything because, like, they the, the company was cashing their checks, and that's right. all they cared about was them getting their checks. 
And, but then you would have obviously, you know, the goody two shoes in the front that were like taking diligent notes and they were on top of it and getting the most out of their money. I was kind of in the middle, you know, I would listen, <laughs> but like, you know, how much can you listen to someone for, you know, eight hours straight? So I obviously didn't get as much out of it as I should have. And when I went into first teaching, I was really, really good on content and history, but not as good with classroom management and behavior management and, you know, understanding how to plan a lesson and all those kind of things. Cause I'd blown off some of that, but you know, I very quickly picked that stuff up in a month or so and it really wasn't difficult and got my feet under me. And, you know, from there I went off, but I think it would have been a lot more difficult to learn the reverse of kind of what I did. And that's what I was speaking to earlier is learning all that other stuff. Cause really you don't need four years of learning how to be a teacher. I think that's excessive. Like majoring <laughs> in education, I just think is kind of a waste of money guys. I'm just hmm. for anyone that majored in education, I'm not trying to shit on you and your path and you can't change what you've done or whatever. So I'm not trying to be that guy, but I just feel like, it's a lot more useful for teachers. If you really, really want to be a teacher and you're thinking about it, study your content, figure out what you learn or figure out what you love. Do you love history? Do you love science? Do you love literature and reading English? Do you love mathematics, you know, computer science, you know, art, you know, what is your jam? What do you love? And then learn how to be a teacher after you've mastered that content. I think it's just a lot better way to do it because you can, if I had been in the front row of those classes the entire time, I would have been like a plus number one teacher from the jump street. And really it only took me about eight weeks of learning on the fly to get all that stuff anyways. Hmm. Um, but I couldn't have learned, you know, all of world history and American history in eight weeks self-taught. That's right. just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I needed four years of college training to learn that history. And really you know, with history, it never stops. It absolutely never stops. Right. So, I mean, I still learn things. You know, I, I didn't even learn. This is crazy for me. I learned um, only two years ago that Benjamin Franklin owned slaves. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people that did not know that. <laughs> and I didn't know that because everything I was taught in school was Benjamin Franklin founded the abolitionist movement in the 1790s and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, how a could that man guys. own slaves? But yeah. he absolutely did. He owned two of them his whole life and he never freed them. <laughs> um and I'll, I'll freely admit that I went through 12 years of public school, four years of college and taught for a couple of years and still never learned that. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So, I mean, that's right. just an example of like, just when you think, you know, everything, you know, nothing. So yeah. 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 Keeping yeah. that humble attitude is always important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Like I, um, I, I doubted myself a little bit when I started, uh, this job because, uh, a lot of my coworkers are, uh, people who graduated from Berkeley pretty recently, mm -hmm. um, you know, th this is outside of Boston. Like everyone went to, to Berkeley School of Music, and uh, I, you know, I went to college, but it wasn't for music. I had like a deviation when I went mm -hmm. to college, and then came back to music. But you know, I'm 31. I've been playing in bands for you know almost a decade, um, and after a while, I reminded myself, like, you know you got the same job they did. <laughs> like you're already here. Like there's nothing to, you know, um, yeah. I and know like, you might not be as strong on music theory, but you're going to be able to play the instrument. You're going to understand how it works and you're going to be able to relate those ways to the kids. And really your informal background training in music might actually be a strength when relating to the people in your class 
because you're coming at it from a less formal background and maybe you can present the information in a more relatable down to earth way. I don't yeah. know. Just throwing it out there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's weird. Cause I actually had, um, a lot of like theory training and stuff before college. Okay. Um, but then, yeah, it's, it's like, basically I've been playing rock music for 10 years or a lot of these people mm-hmm. like rock, but they've been like studying jazz at Berkeley. So it was more like in that way, I felt very confident that like, um, you know, I, I, I already know this. I studied the queen scores, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. this is very my, much my lane. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, 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 uh, whether it is college or just, you know, doing stuff for a decade, in the field like it's it's just about uh experience yeah and i think one other thing for anyone that's teaching or wants to be a teacher is always remain humble and just remember um that i guess would be the thing is like you're i think it's really easy for teachers to become overly educated and get multiple degrees and think that it's their way or the highway and that their way is the only way and this kind of thing and um, especially when you go to grad school, like they really regiment people like that. Yeah. So I, I feel like, um, it's really important for teachers to just remember that, um, always just be down to earth and relatable. Like if you just come off as uppity <laughs> and snooty, right. like you're not going to have your students relate to you. It's just not going to happen. But if you always just, just don't take yourself too seriously, I guess is kind of <laughs> what I'm saying. Like, it's just, um, Teachers that take themselves too seriously and can't laugh at themselves when they yeah. make mistakes or maybe they don't know something, they're going to fail because right. they're just wound up too tight. You're just it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like you've got to be able to like joke at yourself and laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously. And a lot of these people, these people, I hate to be that guy throwing that around, <laughs> but a lot of these people, when they get multiple grad degrees, they take themselves really seriously and they think they're really important. And they, they have a hard time putting themselves on an equal level with their students sometimes. And uh, I've never been to grad school, never had a grad course in my life, and uh, probably never will. And I think it's probably served me well going forward. Right. Thanks for listening. Please listen to Zach's show, New Deal Democracy, available on Apple Podcasts and such. Tune in next week for my conversation with Claire Kennedy, founder of Claire Kindness. Uh, It's sort of a, like, DIY lifestyle brand kind of thing. I hope I'm describing that right. Uh, She focuses on some like self-help kind of ideas, but also some activism and just all sorts of good vibes. Um, Yeah, she's got an Instagram account for it, but she has a podcast, the Claire Kindness um, show. And uh, yeah, she's a cool person. I think she offers some good energy we could all use a bit more of. So make sure you listen to that as well. Please rate, comment, and subscribe. And if you want, you can send me an email at radicalizeme at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at anchor.fm slash radicalizeme. And that's it. Get out of here. Go fight the system already, you cuties. Bye.
You're an independent and you've always been You don't like ideology, you don't fit in You're not a Democrat, you're not a Repub You're not even an American when push comes to shove Where do you get the balls to not have any feelings To not have any thoughts or political leanings Independent, you're so brave I wish I could be you when the revolution comes We won't even see you cause you are an independent You're not sure who to vote for and you never are Should government wage perpetual war or build bridges and parks? These are tough questions and I sure don't blame you You don't get involved cause they're just trying to game you Voting doesn't work and you sure would know When you were home election day You sure dealt a blow The president called He says he'll shift gears Cause he's heard your silence For all of these years Because you Are an independent You are the smartest cause you figured out That both parties suck so just sit there and pout It's hard to make changes so fuck the whole thing If one protest didn't fix it what good can it bring? So don't sign that petition or go to that march Show everyone you see through this political farce you see both sides, you noble diplomat Block everyone on Facebook who doesn't post cats Because you are an independent Cause you Are apathetic Cause you Are a moderate Cause you Avoid divisive topics of conversation Cause you Are an independent An independent